Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all you guys. Uh, my name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church, as you learned this morning. And uh, our vision at Gospel Community Church is to live authentic lives, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and inviting Castle Country to belong to and expand the way. And we sum up the Great Commission through three little words called no, grow, go, no, grow, go, know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and go share the hope found in Jesus. Um, before I get started in today's sermon, um, I just want to say a couple things about Tony. Oh, Tony left, so I guess I'll just say something about Chris now. <laughs> but uh, these two men, uh, it's been an honor to serve alongside Tony and Chris. Um, Chris kind of just jumped in uh, and uh, he's been just somebody great to serve alongside of. I'm thankful to have you. Um, and if Tony was here, I'd tell him the same thing. But <laughs> So we finished up last week our series on Who's Your One? And we're going to start a new series. On, it's going to be Christ in all of Scripture. So um, I, did, I got a cool graphic up there. I don't know if I had it loaded up. But we're going to attempt to answer question of why it's important to see Christ in all of Scripture. Um, before we get started, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for just this, this body of believers that um, you've called us to shepherd, God, and I just pray, God, that you would transform our hearts, God, and we just have our minds set on you today as we look to see Christ in all of Scripture, God. And I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, I'm going to attempt to answer the question of why it's important to see Christ in all of Scripture. And what led up to this John 5, 30 through 39, where Jesus is talking about how it's all about him. And so what was happening is Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, and he was there at the pools, and there was a, a paralyzed man that was laying there. And when Jesus saw him, he asked him if he wanted to be healed. And rather than saying, you're healed, go do this and that, Jesus simply says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And he does this on the Sabbath. And when he does it, 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 it upsets the religious leaders. And they want to know by whose authority. Who told them he could do this? This was the Sabbath. They can't do that. Or he can't do that. And they eventually come and confront Jesus. And Jesus tells them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And they didn't like that. They didn't like what he had to say, and he goes on to speak of, the, of his authority. And I'm going to read 530 through uh, 39 again. And he speaks of his own authority, and then he says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that I may be saved, or you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not know, have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom has, he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come and say to me that you... Oh, I lost my place. <laughs> that you may have life. And then I think that's the end of 39, but he says this, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and do, you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus makes this bold claim that all of Scripture is about him. And we see after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus on Luke 24, 7, he's explaining to these two men that he's walking along with them. And he says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. So he makes this bold claim that it's all about him. And so that's what we're going to look at in the next seven weeks. This is week one, so then we've got six more weeks. Chris and I have put together a sermon series and... Um, of how we can see Christ throughout all of Scripture. And we've just picked a few different kind of stories out of the Bible of how it points to Jesus. And what do we mean by seeing Christ in all of Scripture? It doesn't mean that in every single verse throughout the Bible, like there's some kind of hidden allusion to Jesus in it. What it does mean is that the central thrust of every passage and story leads us in some way or another to the person, character, and message of Jesus. And as I was thinking about when Jesus is claiming that all of Scripture is about him, and I was sitting there meditating on it and trying to figure out, like, that's a bold claim, Jesus. How can we know this? And, and so we're going to dive into that. And there's three things that we're going to look into that Jesus knew when he explained to them all of Scripture is about him. God's holiness, the severity of sin, and the need for a Savior. So Jesus knew those things. He, he, he had those things in mind when he told them that all of Scripture concerns himself. God's holiness, the severity of sin, and the need of a Savior. So we're going to first look at God's holiness and, and talk about that. And God's holiness, and, and I, I struggled with diving in and figuring out what God's holiness is. And it's his defining characteristic. It's his goodness and his power. And, and it's unique and all-powerful. And it's so overwhelming, it can actually be dangerous to approach. That's God's holiness. But what does it mean to be holy? Right? We hear this word holy as a Christian. I've stood up here before and said, we are called to be holy. And, and I struggled with what it actually means to be holy. And, and something that's often associated with being holy is being morally good. Being set apart. Someone that maybe seems like they have it all together and in good standing with God. And it can actually, the word holy can be used like in a negative way, describe somebody as holier than thou. So what does it mean to be Holy. I don't always feel holy. 
Okay, well, we're, we're going to dive into what it means to be holy. But like I was saying, I don't always feel holy. And, and I, I, I don't know for sure, because I can only speak for myself, but I, I, would wa- I wonder if other people as Christians that call themselves Christians, if they always feel holy. Do you guys always feel holy like you're morally good and set apart? See, right now, there's some things going on that I, I'm going through. And uh, depression has never been something. It's always been foreign to me. But I, I'm dealing with some depression. And I'm going to see a therapist about it finally. And I think what's, what it is, I don't feel holy. I feel like that there's something wrong. And I have this, this idea that I have this ideal self of what I'm supposed to be. That, that holy man. And, and this churchy word of being holy is thrown around. And like I said, I've kind of thrown it around. And maybe it can have this uptight religious feel. And as we figure out and look into what God's holiness is, my hope is that we see it less as that churchy word. And that it can excite you and inspire you to live in an abundant life in Jesus. And, and is holiness an attribute or is it something in our nature? Well, now let's go back to the holiness of God to see what holy, to be holy means. From the very beginning, God shows us his holiness. When he speaks it all into existence. Nothing has ever done that. No one has ever done that. And, and I think about, like I remember one of the first sermons I preached on, I thought about at the time we had this giant peach tree and it was producing some really good fruit. And I thought about, imagine holding my hand out and I, you know, I love peaches. I don't eat them anymore because I'm on keto. Don't make fun of me. Don't judge <laughs> so now it'll be a big avocado. And imagine if I could just say the word avocado and it appeared. appeared. Like nothing or no one is ever going to be able to do that. See? It didn't work, did it? So from the very beginning, we get to see God's holiness. And then we jump ahead when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. That's his presence. And God says, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So we we, we see, like just in those two examples, it's both an attribute of God and it's his nature. And and what Moses did then is he hid his face, and, and it just shows how powerful God's holiness is. And if you're familiar with the inner room of the temple called the Holy of Holies, this is where God's holiness resided. This is where the high priest would enter and they would have chains tied onto them because if they weren't pure enough, they would drop dead and have to have somebody pull them out. And these priests not only had to be morally pure, but they also had to be ritually pure. They had to be cleansed. They couldn't be touching dead things. They couldn't become in contact with certain uh, body fluids and just other things that they had to be ritually pure of. And they were not able to exist in close proximity of God's holiness if they were impure. Like, they were not able to exist. Like, it wasn't that they just couldn't go in. They could not exist. 
And then we have Isaiah's vision, where we get to see God's holiness kind of expanding out. And as Isaiah, this vision Isaiah has, and he sees God on his throne, and the, the seraphim with the, their, all their eyes and the wings, and, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what happens is Isaiah's there, and, and he says, Woe is, is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what happens is seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar, and he goes and places it on his tongue, making him pure. <laughs> Sorry, Julie's face. <laughs> she places, places on his tongue, making him pure. <laughs> she made a funny face when I said that. And before, but but uh, before I get too far and finish uh, uh, finish on holiness, we're actually going to come back to it. We're going to tie it all together. I'm going to attempt to, anyways. So we're going to get into the severity of sin now. And you guys have heard me say this once, and I'll say it again: sin is real, and sin sucks. <laughs> it sucks. And we, we look at is sin, um, I want to hear what you guys believe sin to be. So throw out a definition of sin, anybody? Nobody? Missing the mark. Oh, man, you stole my thunder. <laughs> you hit it head on. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Anybody else got anything? Okay, and I have in my notes the sin that uh, equals anything that separates us from God. I think that's the most common answer. Um, but in the Old Testament, we have this word kata, K-H-A-T-A, and it's Hebrew for sin. And the word itself actually means missing the mark. <laughs> so missing the mark or falling short. So what is it that I'm missing the mark on? And then we're going to go back to the beginning again. We're made in the image of God. We reflect the image of God. And every single person that exists is made in the image of God. And we miss the mark in failing in that love for God. It's a failure to love God and others. And when we fail to love others, those image bearers of God, we're not only sinning against them, but we're sinning against God because he loves them. We learn from this definition that sin is rooted kind of in our own selfish desires. They compel us to act on our own benefit and oftentimes at the expense of others. Failing to love God and love others. And the New Testament, I'm not even going to... It's spelled H-M-A-R-T-I-A, hamartia. And sin, in this definition, is a power or a force that rules us. It kind of takes on its own persona. We are slaves to sin. This living force is living in us. So we have that sin is a failure to love God and others. It's the inability to see if we are succeeding in failure, the deep selfish impulse that drives our behavior. And the thing is, is that sin changes people, and it also often appears attractive. So I have this underlying emotion 
called fear. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But I have this underlying emotion of fear. And what is it fear of? Fear of not being good enough for me. Fear of not being a good enough pastor. Fear of not being a good enough husband. Fear of not being a good friend. Fear of not being a good enough dad. Whatever. The list could go on and on for, for ages. And when this fear begins to rear its ugly head, the sin that I kind of always gravitate towards is gluttony. Gluttony and consumption. When I start having a fear of not being good enough or, and all that fun stuff, I want to consume in as much fun and good times as I possibly can. And my survival mode, when I get into that mode of fear, you know, fearing that I'm not good enough, is fun and entertainment. I could go on a vacation, and I want more vacation. I can eat some delicious food, and I want more delicious food till I'm sick. And like recently, I bought a new TV, and I want a new TV for every room in the whole house. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so I tend to, <laughs> this underlying emotion of fear, my, my besetting sin is gluttony and consumption, and I try and take it in, and it's just something that like I see can ruin my life. I see how it's shapes my behavior and how I want to do impulsive things and whatnot. And, and rather than coming to God, I think everything else is going to make me feel better. And I, I see in myself how it's, it's something that I do and something that's this living force that makes me a slave to it. And it can ruin lives. There's a punishment for sin. And it's death. Which brings us back or, or to our final point, the need for a Savior. When we look back at what Jesus knew and explained that Scriptures is all about Him, He saw the holiness of God, the severity of sin, and the need for a Savior. So we go back to Isaiah and God's holiness, and, and Isaiah being made pure by the burning coal. We see that Somebody unclean and not pure is approached and made pure. And it points ahead to the unclean being made pure by Jesus. Jesus is that purifying burning coal. He came and he touched the sick. He healed the unclean with his touch. He raised the dead with his touch. And we look at God's holiness this, and the severity of sin, it leads us one direction. The punishment for sin is death, but there needed to be that spotless lamb. The world is so broken that Jesus had to come and die to restore it, and we don't have to paint this picture of, of this beautiful life that we live that looks great and is amazing because the cross frees me to be open and honest with my sin and ugliness, that I am so sinful and bad that Jesus was glad to die for me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't need to fill my life with all the things anymore. I still will, because I'm a sinner. I'm going to try to. I don't need to fill it with all that fun and games, because in spite of my sin, Jesus loves me and gave himself up for me. So why? Why, do we, why? why did I feel it was so important that we see Christ in all of Scripture? This was a sermon series that I brought up last spring that I wanted to do, and we decided to, we went through Summer in the Psalms, and then we did Who's Your One, and we got this mapped out. So why is it important to read God's Word to see Him in all, Christ in all of Scripture? And we look at it through that same lens that Jesus did, with God's holiness in mind with the severity of sin in mind, and the need of a Savior. Why is it important that we see Christ in all of Scripture? First and foremost, Jesus said it. He made that claim that it's all about Him. And secondly, it's to know Him more. To know who He is, to see who He is. And uh, I, I had a conversation with a friend and it brought me to this last kind of closing point. I can often read my Bible to prep a sermon. That's the only time I end up reading my Bible is to prep a sermon. We can get, a, you know, I've been to this point where I'll read my Bible just to prove a point. Or I'll read my Bible because it's in my checklist of things to do for that day. Or most recently, I've, I've re been reading my Bible so that I don't feel depressed. I'm not really reading it uh, for any other reason. I just, I want it to make me feel good. And imagine with me, if you married people and people who have boyfriends and girlfriends, imagine if this is how we treated our time with our spouses. Imagine if you only spent time with your spouse to talk about your spouse. Imagine if you spent time with your spouse because it was on your checklist of things to do that day. Imagine if you spent time with your spouse just so it would make you feel better. Imagine, this is my favorite one, <laughs> imagine with me for a minute if you spent time with your spouse just to prove to other people you had a spouse. <laughs> How healthy do you think that relationship would be? Weird, very weird. <laughs> That's not a good or healthy way to have a relationship. I don't spend time with my wife for those reasons. I spend time with my wife because I love her, because I want to know her more. I want to grow old with her. And we bear God's image to one another. And that's why I see that it's important to see Christ in all of Scripture. Because you love him because you want a healthy relationship with him, because you want to spend time with him. He wants that with you. He loves spending time with you. He loves spending time with you in his word and through prayer. He loves the sound of your voice. Plain and simple, because he loves you. That's why it's important to see Christ in all of Scripture. That's why when we read it, we look through that lens of his holiness, the severity of sin, and our need for him. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your amazing grace that you gave us your word that we are able to have a relationship with you, God. I pray for each and every single person here, God, that they would look to you and find hope in you and in nothing else, God. That it would not be a checklist of things to do to spend time with you, God, but they would want to spend time with you. And that this moment would be a time, God, where they can maybe repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I love you and I want you. I pray, God, that you would protect them from the enemy, keep them out of his grip, out of his grasp, God, and that they would cling to you and whatever it is that they're going through, God. And I thank you for each and every single person in this room today, God, and I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.